I don't know if you've been in love before, but if you have, you likely know the difficulty of separation. And that is the time where you long to be with someone and for any number of reasons, you're prevented from doing so. Uh, I'm about to venture uh, on a 10-day journey to North Carolina to attend Larry Crabb's School of Spiritual Direction, which I'm praying will uh, deepen my understanding of the Spirit's work in my own life and in many ways uh, assist me in being a better pastor to others who are looking for the Spirit's direction in their lives. But the thing I hate most about being away for that long uh, time is the physical distance between Carolyn and myself. Uh, I am an extrovert who really needs people, and uh, so I, I, I at times get a little concerned about not having a lot of close friends around uh, for a long period of time, and especially just being away from Carolyn. But about the time I start to feel sorry for myself, I'm reminded of the story, it's a real story from American history, of John and Abigail Adams. If you've not watched the HBO series John Adams or read David McCullough's book on John Adams or the great number of books, and even online you can reference the letters, over 1,100 of them written between John and Abigail Adams. But the second president of the United States was a a huge part of the development of uh, our country, was a significant player in the Revolutionary War as a diplomat and a member of the Continental Congress and a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And uh, one of the things I found most fascinating is that after the first 10 years of their marriage um, and then the American Revolution began to take place, they spent most of the next 10 years apart. And this is like (laughs) pre-internet. This was pre-U.S. Postal Service. That's how disconnected they were. I mean... And imagine that, huh? I mean, you know, they would sometimes have to send letters across the ocean and they would get, they would disappear on the way. Well, it naturally put some strain on their marriage. And in some of these letters, you can hear in their voice, particularly in Abigail's voice, a sense of lamenting, missing something that they once had. Now, the good news is is they got to spend more time together in the latter part of their life, and as any wife would probably say, probably more time than you really wanted. (laughs) You asked for it, you got it. Your husband, 24 hours a day. So uh, towards the end of their life, she was with him all the time. Uh, Maybe you've experienced this sense of loss, Uh, Perhaps you know the feeling. It's possible you've experienced worse. Uh, The pain of a relationship ending. If you've ever been in a relationship and suffered divorce or just a really bad breakup, you you know the ache associated with that separation. Perhaps even worse, you've experienced the unexpected loss of life. And what is common to all those experiences is the grief that we feel, a common grief for what we've lost. 
And today we continue our study in the Old Testament book of Jonah. And past sermons in this series, we've compared Jonah's experience to that of the prodigal son. Last week we took a look at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to his crucifixion to get a sense of what Jonah was feeling and having to trust the Lord's will. And if we were to compare today's verses, Jonah 2, verses 4 through 7, to another person's experience in Scripture, it would likely be that of King David. David was the king of Israel, and if you're not familiar with the story, um, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then to cover it up, had her husband killed. And once confronted by the prophet Nathan, uh, he confessed this sin in Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, we see two aspects of repentance that are common to the experience of God's children. Uh, they're, they're common because this is how one feels when they've screwed up really badly and they once knew the presence of God in a really meaningful way. Uh, the first is a need for a renewed sense of the Spirit's presence in your life, the joy of being in the presence of God. There is a grieving over what you have lost. In other words, this sense, this I once was in a place of great health, knowing and enjoying God, and it's been a long time since I've sort of been home, like the prodigal who comes to his senses and says, I need to go back to my father. There is this sense in these prayers that I am longing for something that I have missed. And then secondly, there is a cry for a deep an abiding sense of God's forgiveness in more than just an intellectual way. There is a cry at the depth of our souls to say, I really need to understand, for some reason, getting it from our head to our heart and believing that God has forgotten and cast our sins in the sea of forgetfulness and cleansed us from all unrighteousness. All of these things that we talk about around Christian churches, that there's something about that that is really difficult for, to get our, our minds wrapped around and to really embrace our status as the daughters and sons of God. And you see this. In Psalm 51.7, this is the way um, King David repented of his sins. He says in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me and I will, shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Many, including myself, have experienced a walking away from an intimacy with Christ that was actually feeding our souls and a wandering into Lord knows what to only end up back on our face saying, you know, I once knew what it meant to enjoy you and I don't any longer and I, and I need and I desire to get back there. And there is a deep connection between our capacity to understand how forgiven we are 
and our willingness or our enthusiasm for a reentry into relationship with God. And so today, from perhaps in your case, a place of rebellion, and in my case, a place of ongoing struggle, we are called to repent or turn from our sin and turn to God. And practically, that means we ask to be restored to the closeness of fellowship, a joy of our salvation, that we are asking God to restore to our relationship with him a sense of joy about what it means to be a believer. And so there are two things, two components to this joy we see in Jonah's prayer. And the first is, in Jonah's prayer, we see a joy in the Spirit's presence. And so I want to unpack that first. What that means, uh, where practically that we intersect in our lives with this. Look what Jonah is praying here in Jonah 2. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. What Jonah is doing is awakening to what he has chosen to do, which is rebel against the Lord. And his turning back to God involves a reflection about how he had turned his gaze away from God's presence. And this is an interesting terminology in the experience of the Old Testament Christian. Their sense of God's presence was often tied to the temple. The temple was where the Old Testament believer would have experienced God's Holy Spirit. Once the permanent temple was built in Jerusalem... The Holy Spirit of God filled the inner sanctum of this place called the Holy of Holies. And the people of God would come to the temple to interact with, uh, with, with God through sacrifice and fellowship. And when praying, if they weren't in Jerusalem, they were encouraged to face Jerusalem where this temple resided as a means of remembering the presence of the Lord And when Jonah says, I'm going to look once again upon your holy temple, it was his way of saying he desired to reconnect with a felt sense of God's presence. You see, underneath all of our rebellion is a longing to experience the glory of God and a desire to fellowship with his spirit. Some theologians will call it the echoes of creation. We were made to enjoy a fellowship with God. And so we will chase things thinking this is what we really long for, a relationship that's perfect. Or perhaps something more seedy, some sexual temptation or something that is out of accord with Scripture's prescriptions for our joy. And we will follow these things because they seem to promise something our soul is longing for. But what our soul is longing for more than anything is a fellowship with God's spirit, a joy in the presence of God. Now, the challenge for us as Christians is that this longing will not be completely fulfilled until we reach our eternal home. God has promised to meet this need in part. And it is better to experience God in part than the entirety of this world in full. 
The product of a broken world in which we live is that we are separated physically from God and that we still live in a world full of people like me and you, sinful people who are resisting, if they're in grace, the temptation to put their needs first. And if you put a bunch of selfish people in a room together, inevitably people are going to get hurt. And that's the reality of this sinful and broken world we live in. The gospel of Jesus Christ has purchased for believers uninterrupted peace, security, and sinless perfection. But this is only going to be experienced eternally in the Lord's presence, in a world free from people like me and you. The complete restoration of God's comforting presence won't come till we see Jesus face to face. And yet we are promised in our place today an experience with his presence that will sustain us from day to day. The patience that requires, though, is difficult. We are notoriously bad, and I can speak for myself, at living with pain. Dr. Larry Crabb says this, the pain of aloneness and pointlessness is piercing. It demands relief. That single fact that the pain of living apart from God is unbearable exposes our sinfulness as horribly grotesque and foolish. We insist on finding relief without coming to God on his terms. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned and we were separated from God's presence And like the Israelites who were freed from slavery in Egypt and then led across a desert to the promised land, we are traveling as pilgrims in a desert place. Our souls are thirsty daily as we make our way home. And along the way, the presence of God is promised. The tabernacle of God traveled with the Israelites through the desert. God provided for their needs Uh, manna from heaven and water from a rock. These supernatural manifestations were really teasers. They were were promises of something that was coming, the land of milk and honey, a, a land of a permanent presence of God and a tabernacle of glory. These are all foreshadowings of our experience. And so we are thirsty for this final experience. And in our haste, We'll often try to take the rebellious notions of today and try to make them satisfy something that only God can. Psalm 63, verses 1 through 4, which we read today during worship. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. God has promised you and I that he will satisfy our thirsts. And just to show you that there is a distinction between what we know now and what is promised for later, in eternity, we will never thirst. I mean, there will never even be a need to go to get your thirst quenched. We are told in Scripture 
that our souls in this world are going to thirst for God in a way that they won't completely be satisfied like they will one day, but daily there is enough grace for us to seek him. As the Israelites wandered toward their promised destination, the tabernacle of God, in which the Holy Spirit would take up residence, traveled with them and satiated their daily thirst for encounter. Experience after experience for the Israelites reinforced the broken nature of this world, namely our being separated from an experience of God that we were originally created to enjoy. And when enjoying fellowship with God, we're given a taste of heaven, a taste that will be completely fulfilled when Christ returns to inaugurate a kingdom free from sin, suffering, and the chasm, the physical chasm that exists between God and us. The same longing that you might feel if you're away from somebody you love or separated from somebody in a permanent way. This is the longing of our soul. It's, the, it's, it's a sadness that wants more and is promised it has to wait until another day. Larry Crabb continues in saying this, Modern Christianity, in dramatic reversal of its biblical form, promises to relieve the pain of living in a fallen world. The message, whether it's from fundamentalists requiring us to live by a favored set of rules, or from charismatics urging a deeper surrender to the Spirit's power, is too often the same. The promise of bliss is for now. Complete satisfaction can be ours, this side of heaven. Some speak of the joys of fellowship and obedience. Others of a rich awareness of their value and worth. The language may be reassuringly biblical or it may reflect the influence of current psychological thought. Either way, the point of living the Christian life has shifted from knowing and serving Christ till he returns to soothing or at least learning to ignore the ache in our soul. We're given the opportunity to know Jesus in this life and to begin to untie the knots we've created through our sinful choices, which is why Jonah would pray, the waters closed in over me to take my life, the deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I mean, Jonah is seeing what his rebellion has wrought. And... (laughs) Perhaps you've been there, as have I, where you think, how am I going to get out of this mess? I feel like really caught in this. How how did I get here? And the choices I made, I had no idea they were going to tie me up quite like this. In Jonah's case, his rebellion had brought him low and away from the sense of God's presence that we are promised for today. We can experience each day a renewal of mercy, something God said he will provide. But in our impatience and foolishness, we rebel against the plan God has for us and instead choose a path that not only leads us to feeling more empty, but actually more thirsty. We come to ourselves at some point, and we regain a right sense that Jesus will provide for us in this barren land, and he will grant us a renewed sense of joy in his presence And we can once again feast on the grace that is sufficient for today. 
The daily pursuit of this is what the psalmist said in Psalm 63, verses 5 through 8. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. This is the experience of the Christian. It is a clinging to God. It is a calling out to God in our bed. It is a meditating on him in the watches of the night. It is a a requirement of the Christian faith that if we're going to know the joy of the Lord's presence, we we must meditate on it. We must pray to him and say, Lord, we, we hunger for more of you. You may ask, you know, how does Carolyn feel about you going away for 10 days? And any of you who know Carolyn know that she loves me very much, but she is an introvert, and I am high maintenance. And so when your high maintenance extrovert husband goes away for 10 days, it's sort of like a vacation. (laughs) Now, she loves me. Don't get me wrong. She digs me. I mean, she said so. 26 years. They they don't lie. All right? But I want to tell you, it's... Uh, she always says, oh, that's not true, but it is true. (laughs) I know. I'd like a 10-day vacation from me. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, that's how I know it's true. You know, you hear stories from me all the time about these experiences I've had with Jesus, but Carolyn tells this sweet story about her turning back to the Lord, and I don't think she'd mind me sharing it with you because... She, unlike me, she, you know, she didn't commit a crime or do something that, you know, didn't show up. Like I, when I was in high school, I was in all sorts of trouble. And, and, you know, I didn't, she didn't have this dramatic Apostle Paul conversion to the faith. She just quit going to church for a while. And she tells the story of in college, like many college students do, finally after a couple of years of saying, you know, I got better things to do on Sunday morning than get up and go to church going to church and sitting in a pew all by herself and just crying, realizing that she's missing something that she once had, a joy. Now, now the Lord's presence is always with us. We believe God is omnipresent, so he's everywhere. We're not pantheists, which is a sense that God is in and one with everything, but we do believe he's everywhere. And we do believe that God hears the prayers of all people. But we do sense in the Old Testament there is a special sense of God's presence that his children are given. And in the New Testament, we know that the Holy Spirit has been promised to live within us, that the tabernacle is no longer this tent that moves around or a glorious building located somewhere else. The temple is here. So when a Christian laments the, the need for a sense of the Lord's presence, it's, it's a sense of what's already yours. It's already present in you. And what Carolyn was lamenting and crying about was that she had been ignoring it and it had been costing her so much joy. Fortunately for me, Carolyn was restored to a sense of wanting Jesus more than the world and Not that much longer after that we met. But we know from Jonah's prayer that there is a longing in all of us for joy in the Spirit's presence. 
There is a connection, though, in the second part of Jonah's prayer today that is directly related to how quickly we're going to enter into that presence, and that is Jonah was needing the joy of the Savior's forgiveness. And this is where, you know, King David said as much in Psalm 51, I I need to know you've made me clean. You've blotted out my iniquities. Jonah says this in Jonah 2, 6b and 7. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Jonah is now celebrating what God has done for him in spite of his sinful rebellion. God raised him up. Psalm 3, verses 3 and 4 says that God is the lifter of our head. When he was drifting away, Jonah remembered that there is forgiveness and prayed to his God. In the Old Testament, people would, uh, were accustomed to repenting in the dust. They would get down on their face. It was a physical experience of, I have sinned against you. We see into this world our Savior come in the Gospels and oftentimes with great, great sinners like us. He would reach down into the dust and lift their face and say, I've forgiven you. Go and sin no more. And that is that reassurance of looking into the face of Jesus. One of the most meaningful spiritual experiences I ever had was when I was a youth pastor at a camp. We were singing and worshiping and it was one of these presbyterian camps too you know which aren't like renowned for the supernatural power of god pie hop sort of flowing of the holy spirit movement kind of thing and so at a pca camp to be worshiping god and have effectively a vision of the lord where he would grab my face and lift it up towards him i mean i know the feeling of of being ashamed of, of feeling like I, I can't look Jesus in the face. I mean, more times than I would care to tell you in my life, I have kind of felt like, all right, you know, I get the gospel. We're forgiven for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. I mean, but practically, I can't even look at myself in the mirror. I can't even look up at God. You ever been in worship on a Sunday and you thought, I'd sing, but I just don't feel worthy. Well, the good news is we're not. We never are. Even when you're not sinning, you, ne- you aren't. But there is a very real sense that God wants you to come and sing and worship him because it's about him. And you can't do that when you feel like you're condemned because you've blown it a few times this week, at least. And, and so you, God is calling you and I to, to really embrace this place of being forgiven so that we can give to him the worship he deserves and make his glory and his honor that which is most important in this world. Jonah is seeing, as did David in Psalm 51, an opportunity, a hope, a cleansing of sin-stained garments, a promise that we will be made white as snow, a joy of salvation, a savior who will forgive. It's 
what we can know as believers when we realize that God has atoned for our sins in Christ. And once we confess these sins, Jesus says they're forgiven. 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the promise has been made that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. And people have said, and I've asked the question myself, you know, what does that mean that he's just to forgive us of our sins? Well, as the children of God, what you and I have to understand is is that Jesus has already paid for your sins. The justice of God has been satisfied. The payment has been made. He's not going to charge you again. He's faithful and just. He will forgive you of these sins. Sometimes it's helpful for me as somebody who at times will have his face sort of buried in the dust and go, I just can't look up, to remember that a long time before I ever decided I wanted to have God forgive me. A long time before I ever committed the sin or sins that we're talking about, 2,000 years, in fact, for us, before any of those notions ever came to us, Jesus already looked forward. The Father already saw the faith that you were gonna demonstrate in calling out to Jesus to forgive you of your sins. He already saw all that. He died for all of your sins. In time and space, Your sins tomorrow were paid for as much as your sins yesterday were. He he looked way ahead. Uh, What is the first day of your life and what is the end of your life? Let's hope for 100 good years from 1965. Let's hope for 2065. Jesus saw that from a distance and said, I got that whole 100-year span of Chuck Ryer's life covered. For us, we need to reflect on this. As Pastor Brooks was saying earlier, remembering is such a challenge for us as human beings in a broken world. And this is why we have communion. This is why every week we do this. It isn't because it's a ritual we're forced to to participate in. It's so that we can remember that our sins were covered. All of them, not some of them. This past week, I had, uh, I've been battling a chest infection slash bronchitis slash cold slash allergy slash my doctor never seems to be able to figure out what it is. And uh, one night, I couldn't get to sleep because I kept coughing so much. And uh, in combination with this feeling of discomfort and not being able to sleep, I started having these condemning thoughts. I don't know if you've ever experienced this where you start remembering things from your past some of it isn't necessarily even like you know i remember one terrible horrible evil thing i did it's just a sense that wow was i an idiot or man was i the most selfish person that ever walked the planet i cannot believe i said that i was having these flashbacks and it was like one after the next after the next there was this this rush of of wow what a mess what a, the, 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 the cords, the, the, the weeds. I'm, I was feeling what Jonah was saying, just sort of tangled up in it. And it dawned on me as I visited with a friend the next day that it could be 
that I was being attacked spiritually and sort of forced to think about things that God has already forgiven. And that's possible that that's an exercise. But there is also in us a growing appreciation for the fact that our sins were covered even when we didn't know what they were. I mean, it's not, I'm not at rest with God because I've remembered every sin to confess and so I've kept up a good log and now I'm covered. There are things I didn't even realize I was doing. There are sins I committed that I, I didn't have enough common sense or selflessness to even think that it was a sin. And then 20 years later, it bing back into my head and I go, I never confessed that because I probably, I didn't even recognize at the time that I was doing anything wrong. And yet, you know what? Jesus covered that sin too. Now, it certainly is okay and acceptable and okay for me to say, Father, thank you for your grace. I confess that sin to you. And if I need to go back to that person and tell another person in the course of my life that I'm sorry for some way that I've been unkind to them, I'm more than willing to do that. To experience a condemnation would be to deny what Jesus has already done. C.S. Lewis is the one that said, I think that if God forgives us, we must forgive ourselves. Otherwise, it is almost like setting up ourselves as a higher tribunal than him. And again, there is a direct correlation between our faith in God's forgiveness and our impulse or our confidence to enter into God's presence. We come to the table today to confess our sins to God, but we're able to come to the table and into the presence of Jesus because he has already forgiven us. He has already made us righteous in the Father's sight. If you are a Christian, he has already done all that's necessary to make you acceptable to God the Father. So now we can live in the joy of this forgiveness, which living in the joy of this forgiveness will propel us once again to lift our eyes to the tabernacle, lift our eyes to the Lord. It will help us to celebrate along with the benediction that comes from Aaron, may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine down upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. He, he wants us to be able to have confidence to look him in the face. Forgiveness is available for you. If you're a believer, your sins are cleansed. Now, you can boldly come in to enjoy his presence. Let us pray. Lord, the prayer of Jonah, the prayer of King David, the prayer of so many is that, Lord, we so desperately hunger for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water that is apart from the living water offered to us by you. And we have to confess that we're people that foolishly pursue that which will never satisfy because we're simply impatient and rebellious. And so today, like Jonah, we look to you and we say, Lord, would you return us to the joy of our salvation? 
would you return us to that moment where we, we know finding life is finding it in you? Would you help us, like he and David and the others, to know in our heart of hearts that we have been forgiven for sin? And will that be a catalyst for us to propel us to seek wholeheartedly that which our soul longs for, you. For we pray this in Jesus' name.